Amen. Well, what a great song to introduce us to our psalm today. The title of our message here is Dark Days and Long Nights. And the sermon title itself might seem a little dark, and you'll see why in just a moment as we read our psalm together. And just as a precursor to this, I have to admit over the last couple of weeks as I've been in Greece and touring the Greek Isles and seeing Athens and the ruins, I haven't really thought too much of dark days and long nights. It's actually been quite joyful traveling around and seeing the sights. And so I had a little bit of uh, cognitive dissonance in my mind going on. How am I going to engage with this psalm as I don't feel this particular way right now? But it was actually instructive and helpful for me to process that. And part of our commitment here at the church is to what we call expository preaching. So we preach the next verse. And in this particular context, we're preaching the next psalm. And so we're entering our ninth year in our Summer in the Psalms series. So those of you, some of you have been with us since the very beginning of that series. And so here we are here in Psalm 77. And I think one of the things that I've really been challenged and instructed by thinking through this is to remember that not every day is going to end up being the greatest day in the world. And when you're having those days which are really good and really hopeful and really happy, I think what you need to do is take note of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7, a book that we studied not too long ago, Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. You're having a great day. You made a sale at work, got a promotion, You won the race, be joyful, rejoice. You don't have to be miserable. You don't have to feel guilty for not being miserable today, all right? But remember, in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So Solomon's advice, enjoy your good day and don't get used to it because it won't last forever. The dark night of the soul is coming, as Spurgeon used to call it, and there are going to be dark days. And we all need to store up. We need to get instruction. We need to learn how to think. So whether you're living in the dark days right now, maybe it's a particularly stressful time for you, and I know for a number of you it is. You're going through some very, very difficult times. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's relational, maybe you're experiencing some sort of marginalization or persecution. Maybe you work for some unreasonable boss. Nobody that works at the church needs to speak up at that point. Maybe there's uncertainty about the future. Whatever it is, I don't know exactly. Fill in the gap. That's for you. Or maybe you're here today thinking, man, it's summer. (laughs) This is good. I don't have papers to write, right? Or do you? Some of you are still like, yeah, you don't know my parents. We're still writing papers. (laughs) So for some today, this might be the bomb that your soul needs as you are experiencing one of those dark days. But for others, this might be formative instruction. The the pillars, the columns, like we saw a little while ago, if you will, that you need. You need these in your life. And it's, I've been called so many times as in pastoral ministry, you go to the hospital to visit someone and maybe they're in their last days. And with no framework, with no scriptural understanding and knowledge, with no understanding of God's sovereignty and his purposes, no understanding of his love, no understanding of the fall and what that means for the world, it's very hard to learn those lessons then. What you need to do is store up now, store up now, store up wisdom now, as Proverbs calls on us to do. So with that, we're going to jump into our psalm this year. 
our, this, our psalm this week as we enter into a new year of our summer in the Psalms. We'll look at Psalm 77, and then the plan this summer is to go through Psalm 84. Uh, David will be preaching some again this summer, which we're very excited um, about having opportunities for him to have a few weeks. I have some more travel coming up a little bit later in the summer to go visit uh, one of our missionaries in Uganda, so I'm excited about that as well. But we're going to be uh, mostly in the Psalms this summer. And I hope the Psalms don't feel, I want to reorient you to the Psalms this morning, and I hope that they don't feel cold or this doesn't feel like an orientation maybe that you've been to. I know for some of you, maybe you've been teachers. And teachers go year after year, and you go to orientation every year. And it can feel a little bit like Groundhog Day, right? They say the same things over and over, and you read the rules, and you are reminded of what happens when people don't live up to their expectations, and you you just do the thing again. Or maybe some of you are in the process and part of your work environment where you are onboarding people, you're teaching people how to use the systems and the processes and things like that. And it's just like it can just run through you in your sleep. All right, here's how you log into this. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Here's our messaging. Here's how it works. Here's communication. I hope as we come back to the Psalms this summer, I hope it doesn't feel like an orientation that you can't wait to end. I hope it's more like going to see a friend that you always see in the summer and walking into the house at your grandmother's house and feeling the, the, the warmth of, of the family and company there and smelling the smells. And I hope it's more like coming home to a familiar and, a very, and old paths that are very reliable for us. I've loved these Psalms and I've loved these years studying the Psalms and I'm so much looking forward to being back here with you. I think part of my appreciation and part of the reason my appreciation for the Psalms has grown over the last few years has been coming to a better understanding of how the book of Psalms is put together. I think many of us probably have a default understanding of the Psalms, that they're sort of random, uh, just like popcorn. They just kind of pop, pop, pop here, there. I think as we've read through the Psalms in our corporate worship year after year, and then as we study the Psalms, I hope that you're starting to see that there's a flow actually to the Psalms, and there's groupings of the Psalms, and it's actually very and brilliantly intentionally put together. We've looked at this before, but I want to remind you of where we are, because this will help shed some light on the overall context of our particular Psalm today. So if you look within the Psalter, what you're going to find is that there are books within the book of Psalms. Sort of like there's books within the book of the Bible. Well, within this particular book of the Bible, there's a book within the book. And there's five books of the Psalms. They're uneven, uh, unevenly distributed. And most of your Bibles, you'll see these marked out. So if you go very back, all the way back to Psalm 1, you'll see above it, it says book 1. And then right above 42, uh, it'll say book 2 and so, and so forth. And so we are in the midst here of book 3, um, book 3 of the Psalter, which we started uh, last year. Now, let me just give a little bit of explanation as to what's going on here. The Psalms start out with this proclamation of there's two ways to live. There's a righteous way and there's a way of fools. Which one are you going to be? There's two paths. One leads to this tree that's like a tree planted by the waters and it grows and it yields its fruit. The other is like chaff. It's like uh, it's, it's the husk off of wheat when you, when you thresh the wheat and it just blows away. Maybe for our context, it's like the little peanut hulls when you're sitting at the ball game and you just kind of do this and they just blow away. That's the image in Psalm 1. And so the psalmist is inviting us, which one of these are you going to be? You're going to be like the big oak tree that's planted, 
Are you going to be like this little chaff, this nothing that just blows away? What's going to determine that? What's going to determine that is your your engagement with and your shaping by the Lord and his ways. And so we want to be those who study the law of God. And so Psalm 1 introduces us to that. Psalm 2 introduces us to this king, this king that's going to embody this type of person, this type of character, the one who loves the Lord. And so there's going to be an establishment of God's king on God's place, God's nation, and this particularly is Israel. So the books 1 and 2 then deal with the the idea of the righteous people living in the midst of unrighteous people. And there's constant conflict with the oak trees and the chaff. They don't seem like chaff right now. They seem pretty strong. But the Bible tells us in the end, the tree is going to win, the one who is firmly rooted in the Lord. And so you have this confrontation. A lot of the Psalms um, have to do with lament and difficulty and hardship. And then we move into book two. And so the first book is more or less geared towards the individual. Book two is more or less geared towards the nation, the nation, particularly Israel here, being established as God's place. And there's the communication of the kingdom then into the world. Well, that doesn't work out. And if you read the Israel's history, you know what happens here. You have the rise of Israel and you have Solomon uh, under David and then Solomon and the kingdom splits and it starts to deteriorate. And so we find ourselves really in this exile period now as we consider book three. I just want to warn you that book three is going to take us all of this summer and a lot of next summer. So you got two years before we get to the really happy stuff. So welcome. And I always tell people, if you start a series, you have to end it with us. So thanks for coming to Sunrise. We're going to get to know each other over the next six or seven years. Look forward to it. So here we are in this, in this psalm. And I'll give you an outline that will follow today. I'll give you this, and then we'll read our psalm. And then a little bit more historical context, and we will dive into it. Dark days and long nights, we'll see there's devastation introspection, revelation, and redemption. We'll spend most of our time in the first three of these points this morning as the last point will lead into our psalm for next week. Let me read the psalm for us. Psalm 77, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Here's his questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal this to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. 
You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, and the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings, lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, this song takes quite a turn, doesn't it? We have this idea of incredible devastation. He starts out crying aloud to the Lord. He says, I can't even think about God without this causing me great distress. My eyelids are peeled open in the night. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? We have incredible promises in the Old Testament about God establishing his covenant, establishing his people, about him vanquishing his foes and enemies. Why is it so hard? Maybe you've thought that before too. I'm just trying to serve the Lord here, just trying to do the right thing, and yet it just seems like life is just throwing darts everywhere I go, more and more and more and more. Why is it so hard? We've joked before that when you become a Christian, some people think it's a walk in the park. It is. It's just Jurassic Park. It's, everything gets exponentially harder in some ways because you are standing in opposition to the world and the world system. And so I think some people come to Christ and they just expect this smooth path and they expect everyone to pat them on the back and love them and they have no category for the idea of persecution and conflict and strife. I think we've all felt that way before. Shouldn't it be a little easier? I mean, if God's really on the throne, if he's really bringing us to this final destination, if we're really on the winning team, why is it so stinking hard? It should be easier. And I think David felt that way. Oftentimes, you read about his struggles in book one and beyond. And I think this Psalm of Asaph here reflects that as well. You see this in the, it's called the superscription. So the, in most of your Bibles, you'll have words in all caps that are just above the psalm. Some of the psalms have superscriptions, some of them don't. Many of them are musical instructions and musical instructions that are kind of lost to us. We don't know exactly what they sounded like. And I think my take on that is in the Lord's wisdom, I think he has not allowed us to keep this idea and, and to keep the, the music um, exactly the same. Um, has anybody ever been to another culture? Anybody notice that the music might sound a little bit different than what you're used to? And so I think there's a, there's a beauty to this because there's no specific, this psalm song has to sound this particular way. The important thing is the content. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. So this is a psalm of Asaph, it tells us. Now, we need to know a little bit about this guy, Asaph. This probably and almost certainly means of the school of Asaph, not the Asaph in particular with every one of these psalms. There are 12 psalms ascribed to Asaph, Psalm 50, and then there's a section here of 73 through 83. So 12 total of these psalms of Asaph. Asaph was an interesting character. We don't know a lot about him, but we know that he spanned the time of the transition from David to Solomon. And so we see him 
Chronicles records this for us. We see him serving. He was a, a temple staff person in the music department of sorts in the Old Testament. We see him in under David, and then we also see him under Solomon. So he watched this transition, and I think some of these are original to Asaph, and some of them are his, his people. His, uh, they are in the, in the line of Asaph. The reason we say that is some of these psalms make references that don't work in the timeline, all right? So here's where we are, and I'll tell you where I think the psalm came from, but you'll notice my question mark because I'm not totally sure. So here's the timeline, biblical history. And these are, these are rough numbers. Uh, we could get a little bit more precise on this and quibble over some few dates and facts here, but uh, this is the general timeline. If you think of Abraham around 2000 BC, um, the Red Sea incident about 500 years later, give or take, uh, with Moses, Moses and the Exodus event. Then you have the establishment, roughly a 400-year period of the judges, and then the establishment of David and the monarchy. And then after that, we have some really tumultuous years, and we have the fall of the northern kingdom, fall of the southern kingdom, and then ultimately that leads to this 400 years of silence from the prophets before the time of Christ. I note the fall of the two kingdoms because I think this psalm is probably coming to us right around the fall of the southern kingdom, which that's significant because the southern kingdom, after the kingdom has split, the southern kingdom is where the temple is. And so once the temple is destroyed, things change in Israel pretty dramatically, and that's the exile period. And so I think many of these book three psalms are responding to and reflecting on this exile period. Part of the reason scholars think this is because some of the language and overlap comes from Habakkuk. You'll see a lot of correspondence with the book of Habakkuk, and we know Habakkuk is dated right around that time. So for the Bible nerds amongst us, that was for you. For the rest of us, you can come back now. I do think it's helpful to have a little bit of um, that context in your mind. So let's talk about this. We're not told exactly what's going on with the psalmist. Um, sometimes we know. Sometimes it says in the superscription, it'll say, when David was in the cave running from Saul, and we can go look in Samuel, and we can see exactly what was going on. We're not told that. There's some sort of national crisis. There's something going on. The fall of Jerusalem would fit, but there were other times that were very dark and hard in the time of the psalmist as well. Notice the language and vocabulary here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. This is an unbelievable psalm in that the expression is so vivid. Those of you who maybe have a little bit more dramatic flair about you, you might find yourself a home here in some of these psalms. It's dramatic, crying aloud to God, crying out, seeking God. Verse two, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. So he seeks the Lord in the day. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. This is really interesting. The psalmist isn't looking to be comforted. Right now, he just wants to complain to God. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I think for some of you, I want to give you permission here for a moment to let it out all right? When life is just piling on you, when it's heavy, when it's weighty, when it's hard, let God know about it. You have a model for that in the Psalms, not just this one. Read through the Psalms. It's over and over and over again. Cry out. Tell God. 
He can handle your questions. He's gonna ask some really hard questions here in just a moment. Let God know about it. But you don't have to stay in that. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. He says in verse three, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now this is interesting because he says, when I remember God, it actually upsets me more. I'm moaning. It's bothersome to me. This word, moan, it's actually used in Psalm 46, 46 and verse three. It's taught, and it's used there to talk about the roaring of the ocean. I know many of you love to go down to the beach uh, just behind me here. Yeah, I'm facing the right direction. That way, I just have to orient myself. Uh, you love to, and just, just to hear the, the roar of the beach, especially when you got a big, uh, big storm rolling in or something, just to hear the waves and this constant repetitive motion. Some of you probably have sound machines that imitate the sound, the roar of the waves. He says, when I remember God, it just causes this reflex within me, and I'm, just, I'm moaning because I'm bothered. You see, when he remembers God, he's remembering the good times, he's remembering the promises, and he feels disconnected from that. So it's not actually encouraging to him at this point. There's a transition that takes place, so hold tight. But it's not actually helpful. We've all had these experiences, haven't we? Maybe it's remembering someone that you've lost and you remember a fond memory, but there's a sense of it's, it's sweet, but it's bitter at the same time, isn't it? When you remember someone that you've lost, you remember the good times and it brings a smile, but then it also reminds you of what you don't have. It reminds you they're not there anymore. And so he's remembering. It's this mixed reaction to his thoughts about God. Whatever situation you're in this morning, I don't know. Um, I know what some of you are walking through. Others, maybe not. I think it's just a little bit light sometimes to tell people, ah, you know, it's a tough day, but just think about God and you'll be fine. That probably doesn't do it. And if you've gotten counsel and help like that, you probably, you probably smiled and nodded, but secretly you kind of want to slap them, don't you? Because it's, it's not actually helping you. So what do we do? Uh, what do we do when we find ourselves, this isn't working. I feel disconnected from the promises of God. At this point, the psalmist is not looking for consolation but resolution. He wants a fix to his problems. And this becomes a paradigm I think we can help understand what's going on in this psalm. He doesn't want to be comforted. He says it. He wants to complain to God. What do we do with that? He says, verse four, you hold my eyelids open, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. He's so upset that he can't speak. One of my brothers, I have multiple brothers, I won't indict the one, but if you know my family, you would know. One of my brothers, he, uh, he's kind of non-dramatic, a little bit like me, and he used to say when he was younger, he would get upset about something, he would say, I'm so angry right now. And it was just funny because it was so passive. I'm just so angry. It's like, that's not very convincing. <laughs> and my other brother, who didn't have any trouble showing emotion, he would always say, if you can say it, you're not that angry. And I think we, we probably have both of those here this morning amongst us. He says, I, I'm just so troubled. I can't even talk about what's troubling me. I'm just overwhelmed. 
by motion. It's not a, it's not a problem necessarily. This isn't a bug. It's just how we're wired. It's how the Lord has made us. We are emotional beings, and that's okay. The issue is don't let your emotions guide your thoughts. You have to take control of your emotions by thinking the right way and thinking the right things. So he says, I'm so troubled. I can't speak. You're holding my eyelids open. I can't sleep. Sleep is a theological issue. You guys know that? Sleep is a theological issue. The Bible actually talks a lot about sleep. When you lie down to sleep at night, it's a constant reminder. I have to go to sleep or I'm going to be completely useless to society. But yet the Lord, he keeps Israel on neither slumber nor sleep. God's on watch, so you go to bed. You go to bed. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So he doesn't sleep, and he's providing shade during the day. You see the day and night contrast again. This happens all the time in the Psalms. Not sleeping makes everything worse, doesn't it? I'm coming off an international trip. Adjustment hasn't been too bad coming this direction, but we know what that's like. There's some young babies amongst us and parents. Be extra kind to them. Give them a pat on the back. Not sleeping makes everything worse, and the psalmist is there at night. He's contemplating the idea of God, and it's only bringing and conjuring up ideas of loss and what I don't have. He's just in a bad spot. He's in a bad spot. So what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? Well, he goes to this introspective sort of dive on his own life and on his own heart. Psalmist takes inventory of his own heart. He says, verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So he says, let me, let me just go back in history a little bit and let me think. Let me think of why am I in this situation? What is going on with me? And that's where we find a little bit of a mixed bag. Because on the one hand, he's remembering back on better times, and it's making him sad, because now we have devastation. And if this is coming to us from the time of the destruction of the temple, which is possible, or there's some tremendous loss that would be similar maybe to that, if this is coming to us from that, you can't just go rebuild the temple. It's not, you can't just snap your fingers and everything's just back in order. It's not going to work that way. And so there's, there's real, tangible loss that the psalmist is here experiencing. And he says, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to think about this. And he says, let me remember my song in the night. Now, I want to use this opportunity just to park the car for a second, hop out, and let's just let's talk about music for a second. Music is such a powerful tool, isn't it? I am curious, and I just want to see a quick show of hands. How many of you when we just sang, it is well, thought of something in your life, some service you've been to, maybe it was a funeral, maybe it was a special service, maybe it was something else. When we sang, it is well, how many of you thought back on something that's happened in your life that that song brought back a memory? Anybody? Wow, over half, it looks like. Um, for me, it certainly did. Uh, multiple, multiple things in my mind. Music is a powerful, powerful tool 
And that's one of the reasons here at our church that we are particular about what we sing, because we want to give you music that will help you at 3 a.m. as you have a session of meditating in your own heart. We, we want something that's going to help. It's been well said that nobody leaves the service humming the sermon, right? You, you leave humming the music, the song. It's a very powerful tool. Um, I'm not a musician. In my next life, I would like to be a musician, but I'm not. But music teaches truth. It encapsulates theology. And really, you could even say that music is a catechism of sorts. It's a way to teach. It's a way to pass down truth. And this is why I'm, I'm so thankful for our music team. I'm thankful for David and his leadership to carefully guide us to put good music, theologically sound, helpful, accurate music in front of us that you can grab onto. And I would encourage you to do that. David and I talk about this stuff quite often. Um, A few years ago, even before David was here, I wrote a little rubric for how do we decide what happens on a Sunday morning? Um, And we had a full span. It was a good example. We didn't plan it this way, but we had some old stuff, some new stuff here this morning. And it's not an issue of old versus new. It's an issue of content. And so here's how I think through music and what we would sing, particularly in the corporate worship. And let me, let me just make sure I footnote this very clearly for you. I'm talking about what we would do here on a Sunday morning. I'm not telling you what to listen to in your car, all right? Whatever you want to do. Um, Not whatever you want to do, but you get the point. I'm not weighing in on that at this point. But what would we, what would we do? Um, What would we sing here? And I want music that's going to help you when you're awake at 3 a.m. and you get something stuck in your head. And so here's how we think through it. Um, I call them the four checks, content check. What's the message of the song? Um, Is it clear? Is it substantive? Is it accurate? Is it using the Bible in a way that we think is correct, interpreting it correctly? So content, and that's number one, and certainly deserves to be number one. The rest of these are a little bit more uh, practical in nature. Singability. Um, There's some songs, and sometimes you'll hear radio songs, and these radio songs sound awesome when the radio person is singing it. But then when you try to sing it, our music team can pull these off, but when me as a mere mortal on the front row is trying to sing some of these songs, I'm done because my range is about like this. Very narrow and very not good within the narrow. So it's a problem. And so some, some songs, they're beautifully written, They're great on every level, but humans, normal humans, just can't sing those, right? And so we we choose to say, and David will tell you this, and I've heard him answer this question before. People ask you, what's the style of your music here at the church? And what do you always say, David? Congregational. Congregational. Um, he, He always answers that way, and I appreciate that. So we do music in order to engage you to help you worship, and that's what this team is doing. Uh, Nobody here is auditioning for anything. We're trying to help you sing well. Uh, We're trying to put good music, I say we as if I'm a part of this, I'm really not. Um, Speaking collectively here, but what what they're trying to do um, is is put us in a good place to sing, um, to sing to the Lord, because music is so powerful. Audience appropriateness. Audience appropriateness. I mean this in a 
in a couple of different ways. Um, one, we have a big generation. Uh, we, we, have, we span the generations here. We have people that are uh, older. We have people that are younger. I'll let you determine what that is um, in, in, in terms of how you choose to identify yourself in your age, all right? There's an appropriateness, a certain appropriateness to the congregation that you would bring music to. And so that's part of the reason why we want to span um, different uh, generations and gaps. There's no literary, there's no musical style in the Bible, all right? There is no, you have to sing this in 4-4, four, four, um, you have to do it this way. There is none of that in the Bible. What you have is content, and so content is king and appropriateness for an audience. And I think we all have a sense that there's some things that wouldn't be appropriate in a corporate worship setting, and there's some things that are. It's, a, again, these last three are a little bit more subjective, but I think they're important still to think about. And then lastly, uh, this one's probably my most controversial, and I want to be clear um, when I'm speaking as these are my reflections um, versus thus saith the Lord, so take that for what it is. Is it okay to sing a great song from a group that isn't theologically on point? That's one of the questions that we have to deal with. And my position and preference is that not for corporate worship. And here's the primary reason. The primary reason is I think sometimes that can become a gateway to the teaching of particular churches or ministries that I don't want to introduce you as a church family to, and I don't want to endorse that. And that's a big deal. Um, And I'm glad to have that conversation in more detail with anybody that wants to have that conversation. All right, so the psalmist then, he's reflecting, he's considering these songs, these songs that undoubtedly he had learned probably many of them the Psalms themselves, like the Psalms of Ascent as they would walk up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. And it leads him to thinking further and introspectively. And he asks some really big questions. He asks five questions and we could break them down into three categories. Here are his questions. God's disposition. Is God mad at me? Is God, why is this happening to me? Is God mad Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I'm sorry, I was reading the wrong verse there. Verse 7, that's what I was looking for. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? So is God mad? Is, is he going to hold this against me forever? Ask God your hard questions. Next one, God's covenant. Is God gonna keep his promises? Verse eight, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Is God done with us? Now remember, I think this fits well in the context of an exile type of psalm. What just happened? We just got invaded twice over the last couple of centuries. The temple's in ruins. Is God God done? Like, did we blow it that royally that God is done with his people and his redemptive plan? What's he gonna do? He uses a term here. He says, your steadfast love, hesed, is the covenant love of God. That's the word that's used, the covenant relationship with God. What's he gonna do? And then lastly, God's character. Is God really good? Does he really have good gifts for his children? Look at verse nine. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Maybe he forgot 
to be gracious and kind to me. Maybe he ran out. Maybe he gave the last guy all the grace and I didn't get any. What is going on? Has he in his anger shut up compassion? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? There's no hope, it doesn't seem like. What are we gonna do? Well, what we need to do is turn to what God has written and said in God's word, God's revelation. Verse 10, this marks a turning point. Verses 10 through 20 mark a shift pretty dramatically. Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And then note this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. I'll meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And then the last part of this, which we'll look at next time, he goes into talking about the Exodus event. How is God, what are the wonders that he's done? I want you to notice something here, and this is instructive for us as well. In verses 10 through 20, the psalm shifts from I, I feel this way, I have this trouble, to you, the character and nature of God. I don't know exactly how that intersects with anyone's life here today, but whatever problem you are going through, a good place to start is to change from I to you and start to focus on the character of God. I'm not pretending like that's gonna fix all your issues, just changing pronouns, that's not it. I am telling you that that is a huge, huge categorical shift in your mind when you start thinking about the character and nature of God. Your wonders, your work, your deeds, your way, your wonders, you redeemed with your arm, second person, you. So let's play this out just for a moment. What are the deeds that he has done? What are these deeds that he has done? He talks about the Exodus, which we'll get into a little bit more next time. Let's talk about this idea of life. We talk sometimes, you'll hear people talk about Murphy's Law. We're all familiar with Murphy's Law, which says what? If something can go wrong, then it will. I question that, though. If something can go wrong, then it will. I mean, everything? Like, you can't totalize that, right? Everybody take a deep breath. You're alive right now, so something has gone right to keep you alive. There's actually quite a bit. It'll stress you out if you start to really look at what all happens in your body to keep you alive minute by minute. Um, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole too long because um, you'll start imagining all the things that are going to go wrong or could go wrong. You're alive. This is a gift of God. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Psalm 104 I've shared this with you before. Some of you may not know that <clears throat> although I'm not a musician, I am a little bit of an artist and I have a picture that will help depict God giving his life to us. Here it is. <laughs> Psalm 104. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, the Hebrew word is ruach, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, ruach, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So the biblical idea is that you're alive because you are borrowing presently, you borrowing using God's ruach. His life is in you, his spirit in the not Holy Spirit sense we're talking about here, but his life is in you. That's why you're alive. And I don't care how many medicines you're on or what procedures you've had done, 
the only reason you're alive is because you're using God's Ruach. That's life, according to the Bible. So what wonderful things has the Lord done? You might feel like you're trapped like the psalmist is and your eyes are peeled open at night and all you can do is concentrate on your troubles. Can I just encourage you, take a deep breath and thank God for the breath that you have. That's a place to start. Moving on from that, Psalm 150. This is actually the conclusion of the book of Psalms, but you know we're six or seven years away from that, so you might forget by then. Isn't this amazing that the psalms end this way? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hey, if you've tracked with me over these last five books, 150 psalms, you know what the conclusion is? If you're breathing, you need to be praising the Lord because you're alive. Start there. Start there. What are his other wonder steeds that he's done? The Exodus event, we'll talk about that more next week. The next three psalms actually mention the Exodus. And then we'll end today with this with the idea of the cross. I wanna read a few verses from 1 Peter 1. David is so good about reminding us of the gospel each time that we gather as we sing our songs together, remembering why we've gathered. This text came to mind from Peter. He says, concerning this salvation, he's just wrote in the first part about this new birth that we get to experience. Those who believe in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, have repented of their sins and trusted in him Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Thousands of years before, the prophets wanted to see how is this all gonna play out? So the timeline I showed you a moment ago, what's gonna happen before when the cross comes? They didn't have a clear picture of exactly what that was gonna look like. They had some ideas. They searched, they inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So we're talking about here the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But it was revealed to these prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and we can put ourselves in this as well. The prophets served you, pointing to the person and work of Christ. In the things that have now been announced to you, see we live on this side of the cross, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. The angels are amazed by the gospel and the salvation that you get to enjoy. Does that blow anybody else's categories? The angels are amazed at the gospel, the redemption that you can have in Christ. What are his wondrous deeds? (laughs) Look no further than Peter. It's amazing, the new birth, life itself. God's redemption, his faithfulness. It'll just put a different energy about us when we start to put our minds and hearts around this. We desire resolution in our difficulties. We do desire that. We always have to seek consolation, though, the comfort that the gospel brings. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and what a powerful psalm that reminds us of the work that you've done here on planet Earth The gospel reminders are so clear as they come through here this morning. Lord, as we come together today, we know that many people are in different places. Some may feel like they are in this long, dark night and experiencing some extreme difficulty and maybe tragedy even. Lord, for others, maybe they don't feel necessarily that way, but we can rest assured that difficulty and hard times are sure to follow us and come. So Lord, we pray that you would help us 
like the wise ones that we see in Proverbs, to store up wisdom for the day that we're gonna need it. There's gonna be a day when calamity comes and that's a hard time to go buy wisdom. We need to have a, a store of it stored up for ourselves at that point. So we pray that you would help us with that. Lord, maybe there's some in here and they don't know Christ as their savior. Maybe they've never trusted in him and recognized that he is the Messiah that they are sinners and need, desperately need the gospel in their lives. So we pray that you would use your word, use this time to show them their need for you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.